Earlier this week, somebody who listens to these sermons on podcast wrote to me and said, how much more are we going to have to listen to John's gospel? Because I'm getting confused. And I, as I said earlier, it, this is it for a while. It is a confusing, it's a very dense text, isn't it? It, it seems to repeat itself over and over and it's easy to get lost in it. But there, there are a couple of things that are really important to pick out of this text for this week, I think. One of them is a different view of the disciples. We've often gotten the story, those of us who've been in the church for a long time, that the disciples are kind of useless. They don't get it. They're supposed to get it, but they don't. And they, they're supposed to do the right thing, but they don't. They keep falling over. And in one sense, we like them because they're not that far away from us. But in this text, listen to what Jesus says in his last words about his disciples. They have kept your word. They now know that everything that you have given me is from you. They have received them. And they know in truth that it comes from you and that I came from you. And they've believed. These are good things. This is kind of, if you're going to have a resume as a disciple, that would be a pretty good one to have. It's not bad. So what does all this mean here at the end of John's Gospel? We have celebrated this week the, the uh, festival of Epiphany, not Epiphany, of, of Ascension, the festival of Ascension earlier this week. And Ascension is a strange uh, thing that we get only in the Gospel of Luke and then in the book of Acts. But it's the story of Jesus leaving earth and going to heaven. And of course, it's a story based in ancient cosmology. God is up there and we're down here. In order to get to God, you have to go up. That was the ancient idea, the understanding. And in fact, you can see lots of paintings of the ascension. Uh, and some of them have people looking up. And the last thing you can see before the edge of the frame is a pair of feet, which we take to be Jesus. Um, I, I think they're, they're really funny. Um, and they're all over the place um, in, the, in the early period. A lot, of, a lot in the 15th century were like this. And there's, a, there's one brilliant carving in, in, I think it's Augsburg in Germany, where the, um, the, there's these little sort of pieces of wood that come down, they're all beautifully carved all the way along the altar. And then the middle one is just a pair of feet. It's supposed to be reminding us of the ascension. But in John's gospel, there is no story about the ascension. What John's gospel wants to tell us is that there's no going up to God. It's more a going in. This is a gospel that's not so interested in geography, but is more interested in theology which is, of course, our word for thinking about God. In John's Gospel, the question is, what does it mean to be deeply connected to the divine? What does it mean to be deeply connected to God, to go, if you like, not up to God, but into God? That's what John's Gospel is all about. That's why it says, Jesus says about his disciples, they have kept my word. Now, we can easily take this to mean they have obeyed the commandments. Because we often talk about it that way. But I don't think it's in keeping with John's Gospel to talk about kept as doing, but kept as in keeping precious, as in holding. Something that is precious that needs to be carried with you. I hope, it's certainly true for me, but I hope it is true for you, that people have said things to you, people who are precious to you, people who you care about and who you respect, 
that you carry with you, that are important to you, to remind you, to tell you that you are who you are. Because there's plenty of times in our lives when we lose that. We lose all sense of who we are. And sometimes to be able to keep precious words that people have said to us, things that people have said about how proud they are of us, particularly people who we love. It's worth keeping with us. They hold in hard times because they're true now in the hard time as they were true then. It just doesn't feel true now, but they are true. They have kept your word. They have kept these things that I have said, Jesus is saying, precious. And now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. They know the truth that I came from you. Knowing is really important in John's gospel. It's all the way through this idea of knowing. But it's possible, it turns out in John's gospel, to know without knowing. Which can be confusing, but I think what it means is it's possible to know something about something without knowing it deeply. It's possible to have information and knowledge but not to really, truly, deeply know. And that's what Jesus is most concerned about here and all the way through the gospel. He says a couple of times, you know me, but you don't know the Father. In other words, he's saying, you know information about me, you've watched me, but nothing that I've said and done has impacted on you to the point where you personally deeply know what it means to be with me, to be alive, to be human, to be fully engaged in the world with God. You know me, but you don't know the Father. We could use the word Father as a, as a way of meaning the deep, important knowledge of what it means to be alive and human in the world. And the church has always been really keen on teaching knowledge. We've had creeds where we, we, we think it's important for people to know that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died for our sins, that he was resurrected, and you're supposed to believe these things and know them as a fact. But what if it's just information? And it has been for many people. Many of us have family and friends, our own children, our grandchildren, who grew up in the life of the church. But for them, somehow it became information. It became a that level of knowing, not the deep level of knowing. And we've been very keen to teach morality. The church has been very, very keen to make description and to make pronouncements about who you're allowed to love. And in fact, in some times and places, what you're allowed to eat, what men and what women should do with their lives. Certainly women shouldn't be in leadership. It's taken the church such a long time to get to that, and many of our congregations uh, in, in other denominations still are not there. You should act a certain way. You should be moral, or at least in public. Of course, in private, the church turns out to be just like everywhere else. The sexual abuse scandals that all of our churches have had to deal with is proof that we teach morality, but somehow it's not become a part of who we are. We've been very keen on knowing at that sort of surface level, but not so keen on of it being come so much a part of us. And Jesus says, they, my disciples, he says, they have received this. They have trusted. They have somehow imbibed this. That's why 
When we read the story of the early church in the book of Acts, that's why they can be so bold as to proclaim that there's a new world coming in which there are no longer any slaves or free people. There's an entire economy wiped out. At least a third of the Roman population, of the whole Roman world, were slaves. At least a third, maybe a half. Everything gets blown up. They, were, they had the courage to do that. And they had the courage to put up with terrible persecution. They were able to reshape the world, not because they had a bunch of information in their heads that they could tick off, but because something deep within them was real and alive. We haven't done that very well in the church. We haven't invited people in to ask the deep question, what is central to life? What is worth having? What is the meaning of life? Where does it come from? We've told people rather than invited people to explore it for themselves. And we believe, all of us here, that's why we're here, I think, is that the Bible and the Christian faith can speak deeply into that. But many of our contemporaries and many of our children and grandchildren have given this away completely because they can't see a connection between a set of moral precepts that we're supposed to do or not do, a set of beliefs we're supposed to have, even if they're really hard, and an experience of faith and of life. It's easy to inoculate people against this experience. I was really lucky in school because I went to what I considered to be the bottom of the rung in school. We, we, did, we hit things with hammers. That's pretty much what we did. Uh, I majored in moving furniture in school. I want two boys to take these desks. I was always putting my hand up for that because I didn't get it at all. And so I wasn't in the classes where they taught us Shakespeare, which I'm really happy about because when I discovered Shakespeare as a young adult, I was absolutely blown away by how extraordinary it was, how graphic it was about life and how beautiful the language was. But many of my contemporaries who were smarter than I was and went to the smart schools or the better classes, they got inoculated against Shakespeare because they, got, they, they had to read it out loud without any idea of what it was really like. They didn't get to go and watch a Shakespeare play of people waving around swords and all other things that, uh, that suddenly became alive to me as a young adult. And I think we've done that with faith. We've kind of inoculated people against it by the way we've often taught it, the way we've often spoken about it, the rigid way that we've often been, the un our unwillingness to change and evolve and grow. It's like as if it's a relationship, which of course is how we talk about faith, but we all have relationships all the time. If you've been in employment, you had a relationship with your employer. And some employment places, some job sites, talk about us as a family. Oh, we're all one family here. But we know it's nonsense. We're not a family. I'm an employee and you're the employer. We have a contract and you fulfill your part and I fulfill mine. And if there's a problem, we can go to arbitration and we can dispute things. But when things get hard, when I don't know who I am or where I'm going, my employer is not the person I need to go to. That's not that kind of relationship. The relationships that matter are the ones that are intimate to me, the people who are willing to hear who I really am, to know what it's like to be me in all the complexity and confusion, and who respond out of love and generosity and welcome. 
They're the relationships we really want. How is it that we've so often in the church taught the other relationship that it's a contract? If you do the right thing, God will love you. Instead of a relationship of intimacy, which is really hard to talk about. It's really hard to find ways of saying love is important. That's why we've got generation after generation of love songs. Some wonderful, some pretty smolchy, but they're real. That's why we give each other gifts and flowers and why we make each other food and why we invite each other out for a walk because it's about deep relationship, it's about engaging and there's no fixed way of doing that. The whole Gospel of John is a love story. It's poetry, not prose. It's not supposed to be figured out linearly. It's not supposed to be unraveled and so you can figure out exactly what it means. It's supposed to be brought into you, like a poem is, like a song is, like a piece of music that we've been hearing, beautiful music this morning. Just let it get in you. And then can you explain it? Well, no, of course not. You can say something about what it makes you feel, but you can't explain it. You can say something about what it makes you motivated to be and do, but you can't explain it. It's not about explaining. It's about being with, being in. There's an important little quote that no one seems to be able to figure out where it originally came from, but it's been used a lot during the information age. And it says this, data is not information. You have a pile of data, but it doesn't become information unless you do something with it. Try and figure out what, it, what it's saying. Data is not information. Information is not knowledge. There's a lot of information out in the world, but if you haven't taken it in in some cognitive way, it doesn't become knowledge at all. And then the most important, knowledge is not wisdom. Knowledge is not wisdom. The book of John, the Gospel of John, is a book of wisdom. There's some knowledge in it, yeah? Some things you need to be able to understand. You probably need to be able to understand either to read English or hear somebody else read English to you or in another language where it's been translated or if you're very clever in the original Greek. So there's some knowledge needed, but in order for knowledge to become wisdom, something has to happen. We have to open ourselves up to it. We have to be alive to it. And when we're alive to it, that makes sense to other people too. Not in a linear way, not in where we say, well, you have to believe this and you have to believe that and you have to do this, but this is the experience of my life. This is what motivates me. It's what animates me. It's what makes me fully alive and human, which is what God calls us to be all the time, everywhere. So we'll come back to the Gospel of John. This is the year of the Gospel of Matthew, but we get bits of John in there as well. And each time we do, try and switch your brain out from reading a shopping list or a mechanics workshop manual into poetry. As it opens itself up in us, as we become the people God calls us to be, and be like the disciples who kept what Jesus said, who received it, who trusted, 
and it transformed who they were. Amen.